Hi, I'm Ellen Carter. And I'm her son, Charles Christoph Carter. We are both writers and have set up this podcast so that we can share the stories we write with you. We'd like to welcome you to this week's episode of Serial Dreadfuls, your place to find original content covering everything from dark historical fiction to science fiction, horror, adventure, and the supernatural. If you like the podcast, please follow and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. And also, please leave a review. Your positive reviews help in terms of our rankings. Thank you. In our last episode, Joe Martin got an APB regarding a murdered and mutilated child over in Lancaster. Although Bill Bannister thinks Chauncey might be the child's killer, Joe doesn't agree. Joe got Jasper to tell him that the jeep he was joyriding in was abandoned up at the lake. Joe got a call from Mrs. Dalton about Judith. And now, without further ado, the next episode of Yard Work, written by Charles and Ellen Carter, narrated by Ellen Carter. You know, Sheriff, it's a shame it couldn't have been that little shit that disappeared. Instead, he's just sitting there all warm and cozy, safe and sound, Bill said, pointing his index finger hard toward the station house to emphasize its irritation, the hard light of the sodium vapor lamp highlighting the anger that flooded his face. Should have been that piece of poor trash that went missing instead of the Dalton girl. I don't think anyone in this town would have cared if he had dropped off the face of the earth. Hell, I don't think Jasper's own mother would have been bothered much. It would have been just one less mouth for her to feed. Bill, we had better care. That's our job, to care about what happens to everyone in this town, and that includes Jasper Hemphill. Bill shrugged his shoulders. I guess we just don't see eye to eye on some things, Sheriff, he replied. You've just made me very aware of that, Bill, Joe countered coldly, the two men staring hard at each other. It reminded him of the encounter he had just witnessed between Bill and Jasper, but this time Bill wasn't dealing with an 11-year-old. Bill dropped his gaze. Look, Sheriff, uh, I guess I shouldn't have said that. I'm just kind of upset. I've been thinking about that APB we got in from Lancaster. That little boy was murdered, and now a little girl from our town is missing. There was a long, uncomfortable pause. Finally, Joe said, Let's not jump to any conclusions. Hopefully she's over at a friend's house and forgot the time. You know how kids are. Yeah, I know, Bill replied quietly. He turned and walked over to his cruiser without saying another word. Joe opened the door to his SUV and slid into his seat. He turned the key in the ignition. The little girl had been missing for only a few hours. 
but was already dark. He suspected that she had some type of routine. Even if she hadn't noticed the time, she would have noticed that it was dark and would have called home. He started to get that feeling, an inner sense that something wasn't right. It was something he hadn't felt in years, since he'd been transferred from missing children to homicide when he worked in the city. He didn't like that feeling. It had been his experience with missing children from intact families that if they weren't found within 24 hours, that the probability was high that someone outside of the family had taken them, and he knew how that usually ended. He took a deep breath and let it out slowly. But there was always a chance that she had wandered off somehow and gotten lost. It had happened before, and then the little girl might be somewhere her parents hadn't thought of checking with some friends that her parents didn't approve of. That was a possibility. As Joe drove, he fought to keep his thoughts from turning to Andrea Strait, the last missing child case he'd had in the city. She was just six years old, four years younger than Judith Dalton. With Andrea, the first 24 hours had come and gone. He had worked the streets for three weeks, trying to run down a lead. During that time, it had been bitterly cold. He finally received a tip that someone had seen a little girl and a man going into an abandoned warehouse. He'd found Andrea tied to a metal pole, her small, cold, naked body pulled into a fetal position. When he found her, she looked as though she were asleep. The coroner said she had been raped repeatedly. He looked for the bastard for six months without success. At the time that he was transferred out of missing children to homicide, they hadn't found Andrea's killer. On his own time, he continued to work the case, to run down leads. He had promised her mother that he wouldn't stop until he'd found her little girl's murderer, something that he promised himself that he would never do again. A year and a half after Andrea's death, he and his new partner, Jared Ross, found her killer in jail in Florida, serving a life sentence for the rape and murder of a 10-year-old. He had kept his promise to the little girl's mother. He had found her murderer. After a few more years with the homicide division, Joe had come to realize that many of his co-workers had become cold, detached, and matter-of-fact about the murders they were investigating. For him, it was always more personal. That's what had finally made him decide to leave homicide, to leave the city, to return to the town where he'd grown up. He'd been hopeful that the only deaths that he'd have to deal with in Grover's Notch were the yearly hunting accidents, or possibly a coronary or two. He'd been prepared for that. Chauncey's rampage had been an unexpected hiccup, something that was dark and angry and ugly, and he knew he would deal with that, but he didn't want to think about the other thoughts that he'd had when the phone call had come in from Mrs. Dalton just after he'd seen that APB from the sheriff in Lancaster. There were only 25 miles between the two towns, no more than a half hour's drive. Joe turned off the main road onto Comstock Lane. The houses there sat on one-and-a-half-acre lots that once had been an old maple sugar grove. Except for the houses, the lots were still heavily treed. The six families that lived on the lane still tapped the trees, producing enough maple syrup for their own personal use. As he passed the first two houses on either side of the lane, he noticed the soft glow of lights in a few of the downstairs rooms. 
he quickly came upon the Dalton's house that had been built in the middle of its lot, placed back from the road on the left-hand side of the lane between two other houses. Joe pulled up into the driveway behind two late-model four-wheel drive vehicles and stepped out of his SUV. He already knew the Dalton's concern for the missing child from the short conversation he'd had with Mrs. Dalton on the phone a mere 20 minutes before. That concern had manifested itself in the way in which the Daltons had consciously or subconsciously turned on all the lights in their house. He didn't know why when people became frightened or concerned, they turned on every light in every room in their house. Perhaps it was to chase away their fears, to push away the evil they felt crowding in around them. The Daltons' house stood like a lighthouse against the inky darkness that surrounded it a bright beacon to beckon and guide their lost child home. He walked up out of the darkness into the soft glow of the yellow light onto the wooden porch. He glanced over his shoulder and saw Bill's cruiser pull into the driveway behind him. Joe rang the bell. Footsteps came from inside the house and the door opened. There in the doorway, backlit by the foyer light, draped in shadows like a specter, somber, Wary, frightened, stood Daryl Dalton. The core of Daryl's very being projected frustration, a sense of helplessness. Upon seeing him, Joe could see a flicker of hope in Daryl's eyes. Come in, Sheriff, Daryl said as he opened the door. Joe didn't turn, but he heard Bill mounting the wooden porch steps behind him. He watched as Daryl nodded to Bill briefly, acknowledging his presence. Daryl stood aside and ushered the two men into the foyer. The house was eerily quiet. Daryl closed the door behind them and led the way down a rich wood-paneled hallway into a comfortably furnished living room, appointed with furniture in soft, muted browns and greens, with an olive-hued, thick-pile wall-to-wall carpet. Floor-to-ceiling dark cherry bookcases neatly filled with row-upon-row of books lined the far wall. Tudor Dalton sat alone at one end of an overstuffed, cocoa-colored sofa, a camel-colored wool throw at her side, her face pale, her arms wrapped around her petite body, rocking slowly back and forth, her eyes staring at the carpeted floor. Tudor, the sheriff is here, Daryl announced. She jumped, the sudden sound breaking her trance-like state. Slowly, she unwrapped her arms, raising her right and left hands alternately to wipe at the tears that were tracing their way down her cheeks. Joe walked forward into the room, leaving Bill Bannister standing at the entrance to the living room, and sat down across from the dark-haired woman. She was younger than her husband, quite a bit younger, at least ten years. She was still very pretty, her short dark hair framing a small oval face. Her skin was white and flawless, her eyes dark, red-rimmed from crying. A splash of freckles fell across her nose, adding rather than detracting from her wholesome appeal. Have you found my daughter? Have you found Judith? Tudor Dalton asked breathlessly, her voice edged with desperation, her eyes filled with hope. Joe shook his head slowly. In that instant, he saw the hope fade from her eyes. Oh, God! She cried, falling sideways against the arm of the sofa, putting her head in her hands, sobbing. Daryl sat down next to her, pulled her close, and put his arms around her. 
We have to be strong for her. The sheriff will find her, Daryl said quietly. He'll bring her home to us. Joe saw the desperate look in Dalton's eyes as the man peered at him over his wife's head, looking for reassurance, reassurance that Joe wasn't prepared to give. He knew what they were going through. He had seen it a hundred times. He had hoped that he would never have to see it again. It's so cold outside, Tudor Dalton said in a thin, strained voice, choked with emotion. She pushed away from her husband and turned and faced Joe. Joe met her gaze. What was Judith wearing? Joe asked evenly. Mrs. Dalton looked up at her husband as if to gain support for what she was about to say. Jeans, her blue jacket, blue hat and gloves, and brown boots. I can't remember what top she had on, she replied. I think she was wearing a pink and blue sweater, Mr. Dalton offered, the new one we bought her last weekend. Tudor's face brightened for a moment. Yes, you're right, of course, I remember now. So she was wearing warm clothing, Joe replied. The two of them nodded. Mrs. Dalton, we're going to do everything we can to find your daughter, but we have to make sure that you've told us everything, no matter how insignificant you feel it might be. She stared at him. I told you everything I know. Judith was supposed to be home at 4.30 to do her homework and her chores, just like every other day. When I talked to Chrissy, she said Judith left her house at four o'clock. You've called all of her other friends and none of them have seen her? Not since they left school this afternoon. Why are you asking all these silly questions? Why are you sitting here talking? She's out there in the dark. It's cold. She could be hurt. Why aren't you doing your job? Why aren't you looking for her? Tudor demanded. Tudor, that's not fair. He has to ask questions to make sure there's nothing we've forgotten, Daryl interjected. Joe ignored her outburst. He could see how distraught she was. Can you give me a list of all of her friends, Joe asked. Why? I told you that we've called all of them and she's not there, Tudor said, her voice filled with frustration. Well, sometimes people will tell me things that they won't tell you. Tudor looked at Joe, her eyes searching his. Daryl reached in his shirt pocket and pulled out a piece of paper that had been neatly folded. He handed it to Joe. Joe glanced at the list. Their telephone numbers and addresses are next to each name, along with a check to indicate that we've spoken with each one of them, Daryl said. Joe nodded, refolded the paper, and slipped it into his coat pocket. Daryl, tell them about the koi dogs, Tudor urged. Joe glanced at Daryl. I saw a pack of koi dogs around the playground out back a couple of days ago. Sometimes Judith and Chrissy go there after school to play. I told her I didn't want them around there, that it was too dangerous, Daryl replied. Have you checked the playground? Joe asked. She'd never disobey me, and besides, it's dark. She'd never go there in the dark. Daryl inhaled deeply and ran one hand through his hair. But yes, I did check the playground. She wasn't there. So the Kittredge girl was the last one to see her? Joe asked. Tudor and Daryl nodded solemnly. Sheriff, Judith always calls to ask permission before she goes to someone's house. She calls if she's going to be late. She knows those are our rules. She's always followed them. She's a good little girl, Daryl offered. Mr. Dalton, 
You know how kids are. There's always a first time, Joe replied. Not with our Judith. She's always done exactly what we've asked, Tudor said sternly without hesitation. As they stepped off the porch, Joe removed the list from his coat pocket and handed it to Bill. You know most of the people on this list. I want you to talk to them and verify that they haven't seen Judith Dalton. Bill looked down at the list. But, Sheriff, most of these children's parents work at the mill. They go to bed early. I want you to wake them up. Yes, Sheriff. And, Bill, I want you to see if you can find out if anything else was going on at the Dalton house. A puzzled look came over Bill's face. What do you mean? I want to know if she's missing or if she ran away and someone is hiding her. Are you talking about some kind of abuse? Joe, I know the family. I know the girl. I know they go to church every Sunday. It's not like that. I'm not saying that it's that. But we have to eliminate that possibility. Kids keep things from their parents, but kids talk to other kids. They talk about things they don't tell adults. Joe watched as Bill slowly turned and looked back at the house for a moment and then turned back to him. So you want me to interview the kids too? Yes, I'm going to go talk with the Kittredge girl. Well, shouldn't I come with you? No, I want you to get started on that list, Joe said firmly. When Joe reached his vehicle, he climbed behind the wheel and called Eve. Eve, call Maynard and Todd, get Ronnie Boucher to come in early to help you with the dispatch, and then contact Sam Shirey and Doug Murray. Tell them I need them to start their shift early. Tell them that Judith Dalton is wearing a blue coat, a blue hat, jeans, a pink and blue sweater, and brown boots. She was last seen at four o'clock leaving the Kittredge house. Bill has a list of children from Judith Dalton's school that Daryl Dalton just gave us. I want Todd to get in touch with Bill. I want them working on that list together. I want the other men to start searching. Make sure they check the school, the church, any place in town where kids hang out. Yes, Sheriff. I'm going to pay a visit to the Kittredge family. If you need me, you know where to find me. And now, a preview of our next episode. A search party gathers in town. Will they find Judith Dalton? If you'd like to get the next free episode early, please consider becoming a Patreon member. It only costs $3 a month to join. That's less than a cup of coffee from you-know-who to enjoy access to compelling original storytelling. That's not the only benefit of being one of our Patreon members. In addition to early access to free episodes, only our Patreon members will have access to each new weekly episode of the second half of each book after the free portion of the book is over. And that's not all. Our Patreon members will also be treated to our periodic commentary as well as having access to the entire back catalog of our episodes as our podcast goes forward. So please, 
Click the link in the show description now if you're interested in becoming a Patreon member. Also, please note that you can follow us on Twitter at SDreadfuls. We will use Twitter to make any announcements concerning the podcast, like letting you know when the free portion of a book is about to end and when a new book will begin. We'd like to thank you for listening to Serial Dreadfuls. As always, if you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. <laughs>